0: Today we're in week number two of this series, The Seven Deadly Sins. And today I would like to probably tackle one of the most difficult aspects of this entire series. And it is the aspect of pride. It is the aspect of pride. Daniel chapter 4 is where we will find ourselves today. And, and I really believe that trying to tackle a subject the size of pride is like trying to eat everything that is an offered to us at, at a buffet, so to speak. Trying to take everything in the buffet. It's almost completely impossible to tackle pride in just one week, but I'm going to hopefully do so uh, to not get us behind. In fact, the subject of pride has volumes and books that have been written on just this one topic. Pride really is birthed in the soil of sin and it becomes the main tree whose branches really represent so many other sins. C.S. Lewis said that pride is the sin that leads to all other sins. Dutch reformer and pastor and missionary to South Africa, Andrew Murray, said that pride is the root of every kind of evil. How many of you know the name Jonathan Edwards? Wow, all 6 of you. Let's try that again. How many of you know who Jonathan Edwards is? Okay, that's that's better. Jonathan Edwards was a pastor and a theologian here in America and thought by many to be the greatest theological mind that the new world had really ever uh, really produced. And for those of you who do not know much about his life, uh, he preached and what they say sparked the first great awakenings here in America. And he emphasized man's sin extensively in how he preached. And not just that, but he emphasized in in a very large amount of his sermons, God's judgment and God's sovereignty. And really even further than that, the need and necessity of personal conversion and justification by faith. Jonathan Edwards was the man that you should be really grateful um, that I'm not like this. Jonathan Edwards used to pen all of his sermons and read them verbatim from pieces of paper while he stood at his pulpit. Just read them and the Holy Spirit used Jonathan Edwards to spark the first great awakening here in America and he said this, that pride is the most hidden, the most secret and the most deceitful of all sin. Other sins lead us away from God but pride seeks to elevate us above God. To be proud is to have God resist you to, to, to put yourself at war with God. Pride contends for supremacy and it steals God's glory. Thomas Watson, another famous Puritan theologian and pastor, devoted much of his life to biblical meditation, both practicing it and teaching about it. And he said this about pride, pride seeks to ungod god Man, Proverbs, a book in the Old Testament, and the New Testament counterpart, the book of James, is full of verses describing how God hates pride and what pride does to the individual, how it manifests in our lives. A working definition for us this morning, something that that we could easily hold on to might be something like this, pride is excessive self-focus. It's self-centered, it's self-concern, it's inordinate self-love. I want you to, to think with me for just a moment. Um, surprise pop quiz. Just look up here for a second. Do you ever feel uncomfortable around those that are more educated than you? Do you avoid participation? Participation whether it's sports or activity or conversations out of fear of looking stupid? Do you secretly criticize people who are more intellectual than you or look more physically attractive than you? Are you excessively shy or even maybe unfriendly? Are you afraid of what people might think of you? how about this right because nobody wants to fall in this category do you think that you're the smartest person in this room I mean we we laugh we laugh but that's oftentimes the mentality that we take or maybe you're on the opposite end of the spectrum and you think you're the dumbest person sitting in the room do you boast every time something of success happens in your life Do you want people to admire you? Uh, Are are you bitter? Do you wallow in in self-pity at everything that happens in your life? Because these are both both examples of pride. They're both examples of pride. The one who's, who's boastful and outgoing is the one that we automatically assume is prideful. But the one who is so inside focused is what we call in biblical circles inverted pride it's still all about me even though it doesn't look like it I'm the one that's hurting I'm the one that's in pain I'm the one that's failed again I'm the one that has something else wrong with them I mean self-pity self-pity is the response of pride to suffering that's what self-pity is I mean, we're in this place and and we oftentimes fall into one of those two camps. It's either I deserve this, look at me, respect me, behold me, or it's I don't deserve this, pity me, feel sorry for me, make me feel better. I mean, self-pity is often a wounded ego. Church, we could go on and on here, but really the reality is twofold for us this morning. The reality is this. Every single one of us has a pride issue. Amen? Every single one of us has a pride issue. We have to admit that. We can't deny it. When we admit it, we are able to look at Christ's word to change and become more Christ-like. What is the opposite of pride? Humility. Humility. The very thing that we were looking at on Palm Sunday just a few short weeks ago. And if you did not get an opportunity to be here on Palm Sunday, I would encourage you to go back and listen to that sermon both on the website and on Facebook. Talking about foot washing and what that does. How, how that is an act of, of humility and service to the people around us. But we all have a pride issue in this life. And the second reality is that we can all be healed of that pride issue. Amen? Oh, come on, church. Nobody nobody wants to be healed of pride in their lives. We have to realize and embrace the process of allowing sanctification in this life to occur. Because today, we're going to be looking at the life of a man who really did not realize how prideful he was. And then he became painfully aware of that pride. Painfully and in the end, that man was healed of that pride. And many of you may know this already. Being in Daniel chapter 4, we're going to be looking at the life of a man called Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar. He was a mighty man. He literally ruled the known world during Daniel's day and age. He built one of the seven wonders of the ancient world, the Hanging Gardens of Babylon. He was one of the greatest military generals. He was gifted, he was rich, he was powerful, and he was packed full of pride. He, he comes onto the scene, and he dreams this dream here, and Daniel... And it bothers him so much that he, he can't get anyone to explain it to him. And so he turns to this faithful man of God, Daniel. And when Daniel hears the dream, Daniel's not even able to speak. And Nebuchadnezzar finally says, like, out with it, Daniel. Tell me what the dream means. And so Daniel does. And I want you to pick up with me in verse number 24. And this is what he says Daniel chapter 4, verse 24, he says, This is the interpretation, O king. It is a decree of the Most High, which has come upon my Lord and the king, that you shall be driven from among men, and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field. And you shall be made to eat grass like an ox, and you shall be wet with the dew of heaven, and seven periods of time shall pass over you, till you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men, and gives it to whom he will. In verse 26, And as it was commanded to leave the stump of the roots of the tree, your kingdom shall be confirmed for you from the time that you, uh, that you know that heaven rules. Therefore, O king, let my counsel be acceptable to you. Break off your sins. If you have a physical Bible, I would recommend and encourage you to underline that, that sentence. Break off your sins by practicing righteousness. Amen? And your iniquities by showing mercy to the oppressed, that there may perhaps be a lengthening of your prosperity. And all of this came upon King Nebuchadnezzar at the end of 12 months. He was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon, and the king answered and said, Is not this great Babylon, which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty? And this is God's word for us today. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I, I ask of you right now, Lord, in this place. Um, Holy Spirit, I, I pray that you would give us open ears to hear this morning. That we would recognize that there is some element or aspect of pride in each one of us. And we can each learn and grow from this text we can each take home an application today to become more like you to walk in humility and so lord help us to be a people of mercy help us to be a people of justice uh, that we would be a people as micah 6 tells us that we would walk humbly lord overwhelm us in this place with your truth illuminate these scriptures for us today in jesus name i pray amen and amen. Daniel's message here in the text was simple. God is coming to humble you, is what he was saying to Nebuchadnezzar. The, the problem was, is that the king didn't think too much of the dream. He, he was somewhat unimpressed. And he failed to recognize and realize that despite his wealth and his power and his authority and his dominion, there were far greater one than him. God Nebuchadnezzar had not only lost touch with reality, he had made up his own reality and he was blind. And so the first thing I need us to see this morning in the text is that pride blinds you to reality. Pride blinds you to reality. The text says, and we didn't get a chance to read the, the whole chapter, and I would encourage you to go home and read Daniel chapter 4. But the text tells us that the king was at rest in his home, but the rest spoken about here in the text was not the kind of rest that we think. Like, how many of you like to take naps? Don't be pious in church, all right? How many of you, listen, uh, how, rest is an act of worship, Okay. Rest is an act of worship. How many of you like to take naps? Yeah. Okay. There we go. There we go. Listen, this is not the rest that we think of. The rest where, you know, us men, we can get in our lazy boy recliners and and, and put the chair back and we can have our drink on the table. No, 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 no. Um, This is not the rest of laying your head on a soft pillow in a comfy bed and the covers are... No. And the fan going because I have to have noise uh, when I sleep. This is not that rest The rest talked about here in Daniel chapter 4 was was, um, Nebuchadnezzar speaking of perceived security through everything that he had in his possession. Nebuchadnezzar's rest was the false peace of the ungodly and God soon shook him from that false security. Why in the world would a guy like this not be able to sleep? Why? He had no worries. But the reality is he had no rest because he had no joy. What do you mean, Pastor? Pride is a killjoy. Pride is a killjoy in this life. It drains you of everything that you should be content with. No matter how great you and I get in this life, there is something that happens in our pride. We receive no genuine rest. We don't. It's amazing to me that more Americans... And you're talking about the world's most prosperous country in all of history. More millionaires and billionaires than any other countries combined. And there are more Americans hooked on sleeping pills than any other kind of medication. I just Listen to me for just a moment, dear church. There is no tonic for a toxic soul that is filled with pride. Pride robs you of sleep because you go to bed thinking that I want more. More stuff, more respect, more money, more pleasure, more time off, or more time, more, more, more. There's no contentment in life. Do you know that the acid test of our pride is rooted in how we view and handle our money? Uh Uh-oh, the pastor's gonna start talking about giving. In verse 27, Daniel tells the king to show mercy to the poor, to give your means to help and support other people, to be generous you know, I've heard people in, in the years that I've spent in ministry, I've heard many people say to me that tithing is too much for God to ask. I've heard it time and time and time again. I've even heard people go as far as to say, I can't give because of da 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 da, da, da and started to fill in the blank. I just want to ask you a question. Imagine you fell on hard times financially and you needed a loan and you went to a very good friend and you said, I need help. I need 10 grand to cover all of these things. And your friend says, okay, and they write you a check and they give it to you. And you, you know that he's under the assumption that you're going to pay him back and he, you even reassure him. I'll give you back this 10 grand in full. And your friend says, no, I just want a 1,000. Don't worry about the other nine. I just want a 1,000 back. You would not say, hey, man, come on, let me give you the other nine. No, we wouldn't. We would be like, whoa, I'll give you back a 1,000. You're not asking too much of me, right? We're, we're all thinking it. We don't want to say it in church, but that's exactly how we would be. We would, be, we would be so ecstatic about how gracious and generous that friend was just to us. You don't have to pay back the nine grand. Just give me back the one. So why do we treat God so unfairly with what he's given to us? Why do we do that? I mean, the average American gives less than 2% to the church. In fact, I was going to show a video this morning, and I couldn't get it to transfer over, There was a video that was produced by um, the Christian Research Institute, and it was a video on giving. More people spend, uh, more Americans spend more money on their dogs than they do giving to the church here in America. More people spend money on their dogs. Don't get me wrong, I love my dogs. We have a lot of them. So I get it, I understand But God has blessed us far more than what we truly deserve. And he says in his scripture that we should give him back a small portion. And we automatically have a wall that goes up that says too much. Too much, God. Nebuchadnezzar was not only counseled to change direction. Using the truth of God's word. But he said to practice righteousness and be generous. Practice righteousness and be generous. And the sad reality this morning is that pride deadens your sensitivity to spiritual truth. It deadens it. None of Nebuchadnezzar's guys could tell him his dream. So he turned to Daniel, the one who he knows is spiritual. And he still doesn't get it. Daniel pleaded with Nebuchadnezzar, God was being merciful. The text says that he gave him 12 months of time. Have you ever realized yet in your life, I pray, I pray that you have, but have you ever realized that God often sends people and situations and circumstances and and messengers of truth into our lives to help us change and to see see the reality that we're not in charge? Have you ever realized that? I mean, we have to recognize the merciful messengers that God sends into our lives. And not just recognize them, but we should be thankful for those messengers. There was a situation that just happened within the last week of time that I was involved in. And and an individual here in this church who I won't name reached out to me after the fact And they were like, hey, the Lord laid this upon my heart and I just wanted to have a conversation with you about it. And in that moment of time, I could have in my flesh told that individual, nah, you didn't hear from God and then hang up. But that individual said something exactly at the right time with the exact message that I needed to hear in that moment about that specific situation. And without going into all the details of what it was, because it's unnecessary, I chose in that moment to be thankful for that message from that messenger that came by God. Because, and I knew it was God because it was confirmed. It was confirmed for me. And so we should hear the merciful messengers. And we should heed the words. And it really should cause us to change course. It should, because if not, if not, pride will darken your ability to see what is coming. Daniel pleaded with Nebuchadnezzar and he did not heed the message. He couldn't see what was coming despite how much he trusted and admired Daniel. But isn't that the worst? Isn't it? How many times do we tell somebody something? Right? A, a loved one. And we're like, please stop. Please listen to me. I, I beg of you not to keep walking the path that you're walking. Don't you see what's coming? Anybody ever have that in your life? And the person's like, nope. And they just keep walking. man. Situation after situation kept coming into my head as I was thinking about this. It's the same way with so many who hear truth. They respect the person who's speaking and they say, nah, I'm good. And they just keep walking. Listen for just a moment, Christian. Friend in here this morning. Family. Some of you are here and you need to know that if you don't surrender your life to Christ in salvation, you're headed to a place called hell. And if you don't submit your life to Christ in humble obedience, your life will end up becoming hellish. And I'm, I'm not standing before you trying to be doom and gloom. That's the reality in which we find ourselves today. C.S. Lewis said this, that there are two kinds of people in the world. Those who say to God, thy will be done. And those to whom God says in the end, thy will be done. All that are in hell, choose it. Without that self-choice, there could be no hell. This comes from a book called The Great Divorce that C.S. Lewis wrote. Church, we cannot have an eternal heaven without an eternal hell. Both of them are taught in the Bible, and both last forever. Jesus described hell as outer darkness in Matthew chapter 8. And some question, how could a God of love send people to hell? Well, to the point, hell was not made for people at all. Now, before you jump down my throat and you're like, what, pastor? What do you mean hell wasn't made for people? Well, according to Jesus in scripture, hell was created for the devil and his demons, his followers who were removed from heaven. By the way, for those of you who uh, like to study end time stuff, the devil's not there yet. I mean, he will be there one day and I don't have time to, to talk about that. But that's what hell was prepared for, for Satan and his followers, And so, then pastor, how do people end up in hell? How? Church, in the most simplistic response I could give to you, people end up in hell because they rejected God's offer of forgiveness and they chose to follow Satan. That's as clear as that. If someone ends up in hell, as heart-wrenching as that is, if someone ends up in hell, God is in reality just giving them what they wanted. We can't come to church on a Sunday or a Wednesday. We can't listen online and look at the truths of God's word and, and, and look at them and pick them apart like they're a salad bar. We don't get to cherry pick the, the truths of scripture that appeal to us and to simply abandon the ones that don't. And as pastor and author Tim Keller points out, he says that hell and heaven are our truly or our freely chosen identities going on forever. We chose them. And if a person doesn't want God in his or her life, he's not going to force himself to be a part of it. He's not going to force himself for you to be forgiven. People are separated from God by sin. And God has given us a solution through his son. He gave us the cure to that sin problem through the death, burial, and resurrection of his son upon the cross. And if anyone rejects that solution, if they spurn that cure and they end up in a place called hell, then really in the end they have no one to blame except for themselves. And so church, God sends messengers to help. But we have to hear the word. We have to heed the word and change course. I love what the author of Hebrews chapter three said when he said, if you hear his voice today, harden not your heart. Church, pride blinds you to reality. Pride blinds you. But then there's the second issue with pride and that that is which is preventing us from really hearing and heeding the word and it's this pride revels in self-glory. Pride revels in self-glory. You would think after a warning like Daniel gave he would have listened but no. I want you to look back with me at verse number 29. He says, and at the end of 12 months, he was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon and the king answered and said, is not this the great Babylon, which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence for the glory of my majesty? Man, pride says, I have all of this by me and for me. Pride looks at anything good and says, I did that. I'm responsible for that. I worked harder and I'm smarter and so this is my reward. I deserve this. Man, as I looked at this passage of scripture, I could not help but recognize the arrogance of Nebuchadnezzar. My might, my majesty, my power, my, it's mine. God put up with it for 12 months before something happened. He gave him an opportunity to repent. Church, I want you to see this morning that pride steals God's glory. Pride steals God's glory. We were made to be a reflection of God's glory, not to rob him of it. I mean, here's a great question this morning. Who do you think you are? Who do you think you are? I mean, this was and still is a real problem in the church today. I want you to look at this verse on the screen. 1 Corinthians 4, 7 says, For who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? As, as though it came from your own hands, Paul is saying. I mean, pride was ruining the church at Corinth. Pride is still oftentimes ruining the church here in our culture. And pride ruins every relationship. Why? Because it makes you and I the center of it. You end up being miserable with anybody in your circle of influence. Liking, let alone loving anybody, becomes the last thing on your mind when you've become so inward-focused, Man, even your best friend you end up having issues with, your spouse, your kids. Do you know what pride does? It makes you like an animal. It makes you like an animal. I mean, that's the picture here in the text. That you would be on all fours like a beast, eating the grass like the ox. Pride ruins your humanity, church. And in trying to become more than a man, the king became less of a man, he became a beast. Nebuchadnezzar lost his humanity. Have you ever heard of the phrase he became or he he was so bullheaded? Or they're as stubborn as a mule? Right. You you've heard those phrases before. Hopefully not spoken about you, right? Right, we've all heard the phrase. He's being a donkey. That's what that's what that means. He's a pig of a man. In our pride, we end up acting just like animals. Um, hey, Israel, would you go ahead and put, uh, put that first picture up there for me? Aren't they so precious? Aren't they? These are my babies, Winston and Elsie. Stay right there. Winston is about 12 weeks old. He's there on the left Elsie's two weeks younger. Uh, Winston weighs probably a hundred and sixty pounds right now, and Elsie probably weighs about a hundred and fifteen, maybe a hundred and twenty pounds. I, I love those are my babies. I mean, I, I have human children, <laughs> but but there's something oftentimes serene for me going out into our barn and just listening to all of the animals. I joke around and tell people I like spending time out there because the animals don't talk back. Um, Those two calves are so demanding. Attention-seeking, dirty, messy, inconsiderate and oftentimes they are careless. Uh, I walk into the barn and Winston will start mooing at me with this deep grumble. He has food, he has water, he has everything that he needs and he always wants to get my attention. Why? Because he believes that I exist for his pleasure. And every single time I get into that pen with them, he will headbutt me as hard as he can. It does not matter if I fall up against the wall, if I fall into the hay thing there in the back, if I trip over my own feet, he does not care. He wants me to touch his head and he wants me to scratch the side of his neck and play with his belly. They move so loudly until I acknowledge that they are there. The moment I start talking to Winston and Elsie, they will stop, they will come alongside of each other, and they will stand right in front of me and look into my. I swear at times, it's like these cows know exactly what I'm saying to them. But they will persist. They are adamant about getting what they want when we are in the barn. They're stubborn. So stubborn. And I've also learned that that animals, specifically cows, are incapable of sympathy and empathy. They cannot really love me. As sad as that is for me, because I have a great love for them. In the end... A beast is only really concerned with their own well-being. Animals are only satisfied under the right conditions. And as long as I give the two of them what they want, they're like bundles of joy. We all know people like that, right? Well, I want to give you just another reality about cows, right? They're scared. They live in fear. They react and they respond to fear by pushing away, pulling away, or biting. Do you know people like that? They're harsh and they're loud with their words. They push people away or or maybe they even run away from people hurt people that, that, that maybe God sent to help them? Could that be you this morning? Can't you see what pride will do to you? It makes you like a beast in the field. I mean, look at, look at the king. What a total and utter example of humility. Don't you want to get rid of pride In your life? I mean, we can be healed, but I warn you this morning. I warn you. Don't ever let any author or pastor or counselor tell you that that being healed of something in your life is a cakewalk, because that is a downright lie. The process of sanctification is not easy, it is hard. Oftentimes, it's painful. There are ups and downs in the process of sanctification, but I can tell you right now, it is far better to be sanctified than the alternative. It is far better. It's far greater. Pride revels in self-glory. Humility says, I want to be like Christ. And so the third aspect that I want us to start to land the plane here is that pride is only dealt with through the wrath of God or the righteousness of Christ. That's it. So I know I talk about him all the time, but how many of you have uh, heard of the book series The Chronicles of Narnia? All 12 of you. You guys don't know who C.S. Lewis is? I mean, I, I talk about him all the time, it seems like. So... Uh, The first time I read the Chronicles of Narnia, I think I was probably in fourth or fifth grade. It's when I began to fall in love with the work of C.S. Lewis. And I had to continue to read and read and read. And I've probably read the Chronicles of Narnia 18 or 20 times from book one all the way to the end. And there's a specific book, really, really the third book written in the series, though it's not laid out this way here in our culture, but the third book that was written and, and published in the series in 1952 was a book called The Voyage of the Dawn Treader. And that book is about a young boy whose name was Eustace. And Eustace was filled with self-hatred and jealousy. in the the book, that his life is is this way. And when he goes to visit his family in Narnia, he's determined to to ruin the trip for every person that he encounters. Eustace was was a vindictive and argumentative teenager. Anybody know one of those? Yeah. (laughs) If you didn't raise your hand, it's probably you. Now, um, halfway through the book, And I'm sorry if you've never read The Voyage of the Dawn Treader. I'm going to probably spoil a lot of it for you. Halfway through the book, Eustace begins his own rather unexpected narrative. One that you don't see coming. And on the shoreline, he's supposed to be gathering provisions for them, and, and he's cowardly, cowardly sulking along the banks of the river, and with the aim of avoiding really the work that he was sent there to do, of restocking and repairing his ship so they can go home. He comes upon the layer of a dragon. And he begins to explore this layer, and he spots the dragon's treasure. And he sees the glimmer of this beautiful gold bracelet. And he unwisely chooses to clip that bracelet onto his arm. Leaving him distinctly unprepared for the consequence of his greed. The price in Narnia for attempting to steal a dragon's treasure is to become a dragon oneself. And so Eustace wakes up the next morning in intense pain because the bracelet is now pinching over top of his arm. And as a dragon, he's unable to get the bracelet off. He begins to display all of this vulnerability that he never had, that you never hear talked about leading up to this point. And he begins to connect with his shipmates and his family in the book in a way that could never be possible unless he walked through this specific situation. And one night, in intense pain, he is awakened by the voice of Aslan, who's the Christ figure in the whole book series. And Aslan leads this dragon, he leads Eustace to the secret garden that's really high up in the mountains. And in the midst of that garden, there's this deep pool. And Aslan invites Eustace to bathe in this garden. And he says, if you bathe, you will be cleansed. But before Eustace can bathe, he has to remove all of the dragon scales from his body. All of them. And as he tries to rip the scales off It's becoming more and more painful and difficult. And he does not believe that he can do it on his own. And so he asks Aslan to help him. He goes and humbly says, help me remove the scales from my skin. I want to bathe. And so, as if you know, Aslan is this ferocious lion. And he begins to rip these scales off of Eustace's body. And at the very end, Eustace said, I thought this was going to kill me, but it didn't. That event began to change Eustace's character. And Eustace became thankful for the the situation. And he started to walk a path that looked different. It changed Eustace's perspective. It changed his actions. It changed his thinking for the rest of the book. Well, the, the point is simple. The point is simple in the voyage of the Don Treader. The point is simple here in the text. I want you to pick up with me now in verse thirty-four. He says, And at the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven, and my, my reason returned to me, and I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing and he does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth and none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? At the same time, my reason returned to me and for the glory of my kingdom, my majesty and splendor returned to me. My counselors and my Lord sought me and I was established in my kingdom and still more greatness was added to me. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the kingdom heaven for all his works are right and his ways are just and those who walk in pride he is able to what? Humble. Just like in the story for Eustace. Just like for Nebuchadnezzar. In order for you and I to be healed of our pride, God has to strip away our fleshly, scaly nature. He has to show us who we are and who he is. We come to the end of ourselves, church, by seeing the Savior and accepting what he's done for us. When we allow him to sanctify us in that truth, the only way that we're cured of pride is through seeing the cross And realizing that Christ took the wrath. Because church, if that cross, if that death, if that burial, if that resurrection never would have happened. Do you know what the alternative is? Hell. No hope. We will never really receive the gift of grace until we understand the undeserving disgrace of Jesus Christ on the cross. One author J. Meyer said it this way, that the cross decimates our proud pretensions and our smug, self-righteous sense of righteousness before God. He goes on to say that the cross crushes us because it reveals the true nature of sin and it testifies to the greatness of our evil. Church, we are healed from our pride when we repent and in turn praise God for who he is and all that he has done In this life. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we we come to you today with a humble heart. We recognize in the in this place, Lord, that we all have and all are prideful. But what we do have, Lord, has come from you because of your grace, because of your mercy. And so, Lord, we acknowledge this morning that pride can take root in our heart often. And we know that we do not always listen to the prompting of the Holy Spirit. And so I'm asking in this place, we we are asking, Lord, that you would help us to have changed hearts. Remove, Lord, as scary as it is to pray this, remove our, our prideful attitudes and actions. Replace them with humility and with kindness, with love. Help us to be sensitive to your leading and be obedient to your will. Please use the Holy Spirit, Lord. Your word tells us that he will guide us in all truth. John chapter 16, John 14 says that he will remind us of those truths. And so, Lord, teach us to walk in your righteousness. Let your love flow through each one of us into our circles of influence and may each one of us be a reflection of your goodness to the people around us. God, we ask that you would help us to remember that we are nothing without you and in turn we give all glory to your name. Lord, let let us live a life that is pleasing to you. To be a, a witness of your love and your grace in a a world that needs it. But above all all things, God, we just thank you for your forgiveness. We thank you for the opportunity to even have a relationship with you. And I pray all of these things in the, the precious and the holy name of Jesus Christ. Amen, amen, amen.